Today's sermon is rooted in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. The first three words, uh, come to me. What I'm going to do, though, is I'm going to read verses 25 to 30 to give us a sense of the context, and we'll take it from there. Read with me. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Verse 28, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. First three words, come to me. Um, Folks, in 2000 and I think it was 13, Forbes came out with top 30 most annoying office jargon. And the phrase come to me was number one, but not the phrase exactly come to me. What we use it for, the phrase come to Jesus, you know, used for like that ultimatum decision moment where you have a hard interaction with somebody where people go into personal improvement mode. But we see in this context that this is not what Jesus is getting at. It has religious overtones. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, come to me so that I can reveal God to you. Come to me so that we can have fellowship with God. You, a mere human, can have fellowship with God. You, come to me. And by coming to me, by virtue of you being with me, you will be with God. Now it says in verses 25 to 26 in this prayer of Jesus that he actually thanks God that this way to God is not revealed to everybody. It's not revealed to the wise and the learned. It's only revealed to the children. In fact, in our culture, the idea that man could have a relationship with God, the idea that God has revealed himself to man, is utter foolishness. I met with five people this week who don't love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And one of them in particularly, when I tried to talk to them about the things of God, and I tried to talk to them about the ark of redemption and our sin and how it, how, it, how it necessitates the wrath of God upon us, but Jesus came, and I remember this person laughed at me. They laughed at me. And I thought, how consistent is it that in the 21st century, men are still laughing? Because a long time ago they were laughing. Jeremiah 6.16, God says, Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient past where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. A little, or not little, centuries later, Acts 17, Paul is speaking in Athens and once he starts talking about the resurrection, they sneer at him. Mankind doesn't like this talk about communion with God. So when Jesus says, come to me, the world says, that's a joke. That is a joke. You need to wake up. But when the world does this, the world proves that they're biased. 
They're biased. We say that we believe in a foreign entity, someone not like us, who loves us and wants to communicate with us, and he is supremely intelligent and he is above us. Believe in him and you can have a relationship with him. He's reaching out to you. The world laughs at that, but the world doesn't always laugh about loving foreign entities or seeking them out. Foreign entities of higher intelligence. Next year, 2020, NASA will spend more than a few million to land a rover on Mars to see if there's life there. Whether or not you believe in aliens or not, it's interesting. We are interested in foreign, more intelligent powers. Just not name Jesus. Interestingly enough, in the next slide you'll see, there's a man named Avi Loeb. He is the chair of Harvard's Department of Astronomy. In 2012, Time Magazine named him top 25 most influential people in space. He had a forum, and this is what he had to say. Someone essentially asked him the question, Is it possible that alien life is among us, but they are so advanced that we can't detect it? He says, our imagination is limited to what we know. Our current technology is accelerating exponentially. 5G about to come out. This means that we will not recognize our own technology in 100 years. And it make, that makes sense. That makes sense. You know, if I took my cell phone and went back to AD 12 and handed somebody my cell phone and walked away they would have no idea how powerful this cell phone is. There is more technological power in this cell phone than in the first rocket that we took to the moon. This cell phone is incredible, but in AD 12, I would give it to them, and they wouldn't know what this would do, throw it in the trash. But listen to how he ends it. He says, this also means that civilizations which are a billion years old would be so sophisticated that we might not recognize them with our current detectors. That there may be an ancient civilization out there on some planet in another universe that is here among us or is showing us something, but we are so archaic in our ability that we can't receive it. We can't take it in. Y'all following? Now listen, the world is willing to receive that. He's got degrees from Harvard. Well, he works at Harvard. I don't know if he got a degree from Harvard, but he's clearly a smart man. The world is clearly applauding him. He has a chair at Harvard. That is a big deal. Time magazine gives him a salute. That is a big deal. And the world says, since he says it, it's okay. He says, there's a chance that there's alien life forms billion years old that are so sophisticated in us that we wouldn't know them unless they revealed themselves to us. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 17 says, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and eternal glory forever and ever. Amen. There is a bias. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come to you because in and of myself, I don't have it. I don't have the wisdom, neither the strength, neither the eloquence to show people who you are, people who desperately need you, But Lord, you say that there is strength for today when you don't say, but we say in response to you, there is strength for today and bright hopes for tomorrow because of your love for us, because you revealed yourself to us. And when you revealed yourself to us, you didn't put us off, but you said, come to me. Lord, please help me to proclaim your name and proclaim your message that we would live at the foot of the cross and drink deeply from the fountain of life that is Jesus Christ In your holy name we pray.
Amen. Now listen. When Jesus says, come to me, when he says those three words, he's saying something that we should pause and really meditate on. Because as I said before, he is telling us that we can have communion with God if we come to him. That is huge. That is of great importance. The problem is, is that there's a lot of difficulties that we internally experience when we hear that call of Christ. And so we're, the method of progress for today's sermon, next slide, is this. We'll break it down, those three words, into just the two, the two main ones, me. Who's this me? Man's difficulty with Jesus. And then two, come. And I'll talk about this word come for saints, for people who believe in Jesus, and for sinners, people who do not believe in Jesus yet. So let's take the first one, me. Jesus says, come to me. Who is he referring to? Or what is he referring to? What's the difficulty there? Well, we have a difficulty with Jesus. But the difficulty we have with Jesus, we have with everyone else. It's just on a higher level. I know that sounds confusing. I'll make sense of it in a second. If you go to the next slide, um, this is what it says. Men marry women with the hope they will never change. Women marry men with the hope they will change. Invariably, they are both disappointed. One more time. Men marry women with the hope they will never change. Women marry men with the hope they will change. Invariably, they are disappointed. Now, it's, this quote is attributed to Albert Einstein. I'm not so sure that he said it, so I didn't give him his due. But he a pretty smart dude on a lot of things then, because this right here is golden. Right? Now listen, now listen. What's the issue here? The issue here is that in our most deepest and intimate relationships in life, in our marriages, for those of us who are married, if you're not married, you have other intimate relationships, but a marriage is, I mean, that's, there's no greater intimacy than that. He's saying that even in that relationship, we're using the other person for our own means. We don't want the other person to be a person. We want the other person to do and to be how we want them to be. You're a stereotypical man, centrally pleased. You want your wife to stay just the way that you married her. In your mind, you made a down payment on goods. And if you're a stereotypical woman, perhaps, in your mind, you said, I made an investment on potential. (laughs) Ladies is laughing hard. (laughs) Now listen, now listen. The reality is we all get disappointed because you're coming to people. People aren't what you want them to be. They're people. You can't force them into your box. They're people. And the world is very content to accept a Jesus of thought. It's a little Sermon on the Mount. This verse, that verse, take his verses out of context. Jesus says you should not judge. And next verse down, he calls people wolves. But what they don't get is that they're trying to put Jesus into a box. The issue that we run to as modern man is we run into an issue of his personhood. He's a real person. He's not willing to be deconstructed into your various thoughts, into your little prayers at the end of the day. He's not content with that. When I was growing up, you know, I ended every prayer with, in Jesus' name, amen, like an incantation. When I got a little older, one time I didn't end my prayer, in Jesus' name, amen, and I was severely rebuked. And he said, you end every prayer in Jesus' name, amen. I said, Paul never ended his prayer in Jesus' name. But no. But what is that person doing? What that person's doing is they're trying to take the name of Jesus the idea, and turn him into an idea as opposed to what he is, a person. And that's our first issue with him. But our second issue with him is that Jesus is strange. 
He's strange. So when he says, come to me, you're, you're coming to a person who's strange. John chapter 2, it's the Passover. Jesus shows up in the temple. Everybody's cool. Everybody's happy. It's the Passover. Religious holiday. We good. The Romans is letting us do our thing. We're fine. But they're selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers are seated at their tables. Jesus makes a, a scourge of cords and causes a riot. Now, if you're one of his disciples, you're like, can't you chill out? Can we relax today? Jesus is like, no. Do not take my father's house and make it into a den of robbers in a marketplace. His disciples remembered later on that it was written in Psalm 69, verse 9, zeal for your house will consume me. John chapter 4, he's caught speaking with a Samaritan woman. Even the Samaritan woman is like, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Why are we talking? John chapter 7, his brothers say to him, if, you, if you're really the Messiah, show yourself to the world. No one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. Jesus says to them, my time has not yet come. <laughs> That's strange. Then he continues, but your time is always opportune. The world loves you because you love the world. But the world hates me because I testify of its evil. If you're one of his brothers, you're like, you always on that. Talking that nonsense. You always talking like that. Why you talk like that? Speak regularly. <laughs> and I'm, 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 I'm adding levity to it. But consider this for a moment. Don't you ever read your Bible and grow in insecurity because Paul and the rest of the apostles, their zeal and love for God is just strange to you? When David says in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Don't you ever be like, man, they got a different Christianity. That says something. They, they met somebody. They know somebody. They didn't meet a thought. They met a person. They met Jesus, the risen Savior of the world. Do you understand? That's something to check ourselves by. But what further bothers us about Jesus is that he's so good that we want to cast him out. You know, that person, you know, they're almost like an alien. They're good at everything. He plays basketball. He plays piano. He's good at soccer. He plays cello. And then he do something strange like crochet or something. And you like, forget about it. Right now, this person, this person, they're so amazing to you. You kind of put them in a different category. But what pisses you off about that person the most is you, you say about them, like, in the back of your mind, you're like, yeah, they do all these things, right? They're really good. Jesus is really good, but, or this person is really good, but I bet you they're not humble. Only to get next to them at a dinner party and realize they're the most humble person you ever met, and you're crushed. You're like, this person has everything. And you want to poke at them and pick at them. And Jesus walked in such a perfect holiness that the world, since he has come into it, has been trying to find a way to discredit him time and time and time and time again. And the question is, why? Why is Jesus so difficult for us? The person, not the thought. We're, we'll, we'll take that thought. But the person, why is he so difficult? He's difficult primarily because of what he did on that cross. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8 says this. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used, or another version says something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is this point that we can't tolerate by nature. See, 
Jesus says in Matthew chapter 27, chapter, excuse me, chapter 28, verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, what? Gentle and humble in heart. And where's his humility? His humility is that he died on the cross. God, eternal son of God, comes into the world. Imagine you, a human being, all of a sudden loved the ant colonies and zapped yourself into a small ant only to be crushed by a human and did it willingly. That's what Jesus does. The eternal son of God who who never had a body, this, this fleshly thing that holds us back so often, never had it, but he gets into it. What? For what? To die for our sins. And he does it with a humility and a meekness. And then he pleads with us and says, come to me. And our heart says, I would come to you, but you did everything already. Is there something that I can do to to, to also earn my union with you? Is there something that I can do? Is there something that I can perform? There's a lot of people who say they don't want to come to Christ. What they really mean is they don't want to accept the grace But if you told them, listen, you could be a Christian if you came every Sunday for one year, they'd be there. And they said, listen, if you read the Bible in one day, they do it just to get into the kingdom. But you tell people it's free at the cost of the eternal son of God's blood. And they say, my pride won't let me do it. We have a problem with him. We have a problem with him. The problem is rooted in our narcissism. Our ego, as this quote puts it wonderfully, a man named Ralph Caldworth put it very well. He said, listen to this. It is no wonder, and therefore it is no wonder if men seem naturally more devoutly affected towards such an imaginary God. That's a tough sentence. What he's saying is people will praise idols, worship idols. Some people, our job is our idol. We'll worship that. We'll give our life to that. But listen to what he says. He says, But they'll love those idols. Why? Because it's nothing but an image of themselves, which narcissists like, they fall in love with it. I've met many people who worked in the nonprofit world and work 80-hour work weeks and tell you they do it because they love the cause. But it's not true. They do it because they love what the cause does for them and how it makes them feel. I know many people who say they really genuinely love their children only to watch them raise them in such a way as only to make them a mini-me of themselves. And that their love for them is really only contingent upon whether their child is obedient to them. This is not love. This is like the Greek mythology narcissist who fell in love with his own reflection in a pool of water. There are a lot of people who say they love school. They don't really love learning. They like getting A's, my friend. And when they stop getting A's, all of a sudden they complain about everything about school. Do you see what I mean? Do you see why Jesus is so difficult? Because what Jesus says is he says, stop. The place on which you stand when you come to me is holy ground. When you come to me, you can't come with self. Self must die. I died for that self. And so you either come and die with me to be raised with me, or we cannot live together. There's difficulty with Jesus because he's a real person. And more than that, he is God himself. So when he says, come to me and people don't come, don't be surprised. Next thing. The second part, this word come. What is this idea of coming? 
When Jesus says come, he doesn't mean walk towards him. If so, many people would have been saved. What Jesus means is give me your heart. Give me your affections. When I watch the Golden State Warriors, right, it's a, I promise it makes sense. When I watch the Golden State Warriors, I see something amazing. Steph Curry catches the ball. Y'all know Steph Curry? Maybe not. Steph Curry is a professional basketball player. He's known for shooting long-range three-pointers. He's very small, so it's quite shocking that he's able to perform such a feat. Okay. When he catches the ball and he's ready to shoot, there are people already raising their hands before the shot goes in. And when he makes the shot, they're losing their minds. Those are the same people that if I were to take them out of Oracle Arena and put them here right now in this service, put John Chung and the team back on stage to sing a song for God, they couldn't raise their hands. And it's not that they can't raise their hands because they raised it in Oracle. It's that they won't raise their hands. When Jesus says come, what he means is give me your heart. Give me your affections. I know you have affections. I know you have a heart. I know you worship things. I'm asking you to give them to me. When the Bible says that you are a new creature in Christ, he does not mean that you are altogether new in every sense. Like you used to suck at math, but now you're a Christian. Now you're awesome at math. It doesn't happen that way. What he means is that you used to walk after darkness. You used to live for yourself, and now you still walk, but you walk in the light. Still walking, now walking after the light. Now, more particularly, when Jesus says come, we would be wise as Christians to take this call for ourselves. If you're a Christian here, take that for yourself. And take it like this. When you first came to Christ, don't you remember, for those of us who are older here, just a little bit older, and have been walking with the Lord for maybe a decade or two, you remember your early days in the Lord? Do you remember how sweet your fellowship was with him? Remember how seriously you took your Bible? Remember how you said you're going to read this whole thing? Remember how you attended the prayer meeting? And now the years have gone by and your love for Christ has waned. My friends, those words come to me. They're still for you. You can come again. Keep coming. Keep coming. Keep coming. Don't stop. Keep coming. Next slide. Hosea 6, 1 to 3 puts it best. Israel was beaten by God for their rebellion. Look what he says, what they say. They say, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. Israel in their disobedience knew That if this God could save us in our rebellion the first time, surely he won't abandon his children. My friends, when you hear the words come to me, when Jesus is calling, even in this service, even when you hear the, the songs being sung and you want to raise your hand, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Raise your hands. Give him worship. Give him praise. He's worthy of your praise, my Christian. Come back to the blood. The cross is not just for sinners, but for saints. For saints, come back. And next time you come back, don't leave, stay there. Unfortunately, there's a type of Christian that is growing rampant in our culture. The type of Christian who says they love God and they have these intense emotions for God, but they have no disciplines whatsoever. 
They don't read their Bible. They don't pray. They call that legalism. And then they say this. Then they say this. They say, we can do that because of grace. My friends, grace doesn't do that. Real grace, real grace helps you to obey even when you don't feel it. Real grace helps you look at the cross of Christ, helps you see your unworthiness. and wants, wants, It makes you want to serve God with every ounce of your being. That's real grace. That's real grace. The next thing, though, is this for the Christian. Christian, don't come alone. When you hear those words come to me, don't come alone. I'll ask a serious question. Don't raise your hand. Don't make an audible reply. This is for your own heart. Serious question to all of you. Ask yourself, if you are a believer here, question. Have you brought anybody to the Lord? Have you brought anyone to the God that you love? You hear a good song and you share it. You cook good food and you share it. You read a good book and you share it. Have you met a good God? Have you brought anybody to the Lord? I get it. We're in a culture where we don't talk like that because that sounds like, no, you're trying to force me, trying to make me feel guilty. No, what does he say? Go, therefore, and make disciples. It's what he wants. It's what your master wants. And my friends, what are you calling people to? You're not calling into a life of slavery. What does he say? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If you love people, don't you want to bring them to rest? Don't you want them to have joy and life abundant? Christian, if you're going to come, bring somebody with you. Now for the sinner. I'm going to list a couple things here before I close. For the Christians here, it's relevant to you because sometimes our hearts still do this. It's relevant. Don't cast it off. But if you are someone here who is not in the love of God, you have not heeded the call, come to me. I want you to consider a couple of these points. Ask them if you are in any of these categories and consider them deeply. Here we go. Sometimes when the sinner hears the call, come to me, the reply they make is, I might come. Every Sunday, I'm across the hall, most Sundays at least, teaching Sunday school. And there are moments, guys, where you should see it. You should see it. Maybe your kid is difficult with you and doesn't listen to you. That's tough. Yes, as parents, I, I, I'm sorry. When I have my kid, my kid won't listen to me. It is what it is. But, but it's amazing. There are times where I'm, I'm preaching and I'm teaching them, and you can see their heart soften. You can see them break down a little. You can tell that you, you hit them. You can tell that the cross of Christ, they're, they're catching it. They're seeing it plain. And they'll, sometimes they'll stay afterwards And you can tell that they're thinking about it. And they say, I might come. And it's sad because when they say, I might come, they don't realize how much pride is there. They don't realize that indecision with spiritual things is decision. That as long as you say, I might come, you have not come. And your being on the fence is doubting his goodness. As Elijah said, he said, to the Israelites when they were serving the idol Baal. He said, choose this day whom you will serve, Baal or the Lord God Almighty. 
And sometimes the way people put their indecision, when they say, I might, what they're saying is, sometimes they'll say, I might, but answer this question first. I am all for people who have valid questions because Jesus was for people who had valid questions. But if we're honest with ourselves, quite frankly, not all of our questions for those who don't believe are from a good place. Questions like, where did Cain's wife come from? Really? Questions like, well, if God knows everything and he knew we were going to rebel, why did he make this happen? My friend, stop for a moment. Just stop. If you were in danger and I said duck, would you say, what direction is the projectile coming from? (laughs) If you were lost and you picked up a compass and it pointed north, you wouldn't go, I won't follow it until I know how this thing works. If you were bleeding out from your brain and you were, on, and you were on the operating table, you wouldn't say to your surgeon before they knocked you out, before they gave you the anesthetic, you wouldn't say to the surgeon, I, before you knock me out, I know I'm about to die, but just tell me what you're going to do. Give me the ins and outs. Explain everything to me. People who are truly weary and burdened, and they have a load of sin, and they know that they have offended God, and they know they are under the wrath of God, they don't come with their questions. They don't come with their questions. They come with pleading, save me. Save me now. Save me or I die. That's what they say. They don't say, Jesus, are you sure? No, they know they're not in a position. Next one. Sometimes people say, I can't. I'm scared. My friends, I'll never forget, I was with a woman once. She's about 50 years old. We were working on a project together. I used to go over to our house. Her kids would play around. We'd sit outside. She had a beautiful, big house. She was quite accomplished, her and her husband. And we were, we, were, we were writing a script for a play. We took The Wizard of Oz, and we tried to Christianize it. So we called it The Prophet of Uz. And I remember, <laughs> like Job. Now listen, and I, remember, and I remember she wasn't saved. So I tried my hardest to talk to her about the things of God. I really did. I really did. And I'll never forget, week after week, she would soften. And you could tell that she, she felt him calling. She felt him calling. And I'll never forget the day she broke. But this is what her, her heart said. She said to me, I was talking about the love of Christ. About he, how he came to, to, to rescue sinners and rebels. How we're not just exiles. We're worse than exiles. We're fugitives. We're on the run. And how he's after us. And we think that he's chasing after us to kill us, but he's really chasing after us to bring us back home. I'm talking to her about this, and I'll never forget, she cried out and she started shaking. And she said, David, I used to smoke crack. Whoa. Then she continued, she said, David, do you know I used to be a part of organizations that used to bully Christians and belittle Christians? He won't accept me. Whoa, she was afraid. Her feeling was that if I fess up to what I'm really like, who would ever take me? People do this in romantic relationships all the time. You in crazy debt. You got like $2,300 worth of school loans. You don't tell them that until first day after marriage. By the way, by the way, Sally Mae, yo, (laughs) Navient, yo, (laughs) But we're in this together, praise God. Because you're worried, because you're worried they're not going to really own you. You know, you work that nice job for a Fortune 500 company. 
You've been dating her for three years. Remember, she married you on potential. And you know you're trying to leave this job. You know you're trying to leave Morgan Stanley so you can work for some nonprofit. You tell her after you get married what's going on. Babe, I got to leave. What? But we're in this together. Covenant. See what I'm saying? Now listen, it applies, guys. It applies to the scriptures. It's the same thing with God. We feel like if I fess up to what I'm really like, he won't own me, and I'm afraid. I'm afraid that he will reject me. My friends, those are not godly fears. Those are carnal fears. First John chapter 3, verse 18 says, There is no fear in love. For perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears has not been perfected in love. My friends, if you've truly tasted the love of Christ, if you've heard those words come to me, you know that it is not Christ you're running from. You're running from your sin. And you know that it's only he who can give you the escape from the punishment of your sin. The next person, they say, I'll come, but I'll do it later. I'll come, but give me some time. I want you guys to know that there is no verse in the Bible that tells us that we have until our dying breath to come to Christ. There is no verse in the Bible that says that. The Spirit of God can stop poking you long before your deathbed. Pharaoh lost his chance. God hardened his heart. Judas didn't have a shot. To say you'll come later is again to deny his goodness and to spit upon his blood as a thing not worthy of your immediate attention. I've spoken to youth who have texted me at night messages of distress about their soul only for me to reply to them and say, let's meet tomorrow and talk for them to say to me, I have homework, my friend. If you're ever going to get a zero on a test, it should be for this. Lastly, this is the blessed reply to the words of Jesus when he says, come to me. It's the heart that says, I come. Out of my bondage, sorrow, and night, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. What is it that this person sees? What is it that anybody sees? Anybody who comes to Christ, what is it that they have finally seen? Zechariah 12.10 puts it perfectly. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. You catch that? God is saying that he's going to pour out upon people grace and supplication. And what does that look like? What does grace look like in your life? Listen to this. So that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn son. Do you catch that? Do you see what the sinner sees that makes them come to Christ? They don't see prosperity like the prosperity gospel preaches. They don't see affluence. They don't see stability in life. What they see and what the Christian sees 
When they say, come to me, when they finally look at Jesus, what do they see? They see him dying on the cross. They see Jesus wounded for me, wounded for me. Up on the cross, he was wounded for me. Gone my transgressions, for now I am free. All because Jesus was wounded for me. That is a gospel sight. To my youth, have you seen Jesus wounded for you? To the adults, have you seen Jesus wounded for you? Have you come to the cross and seen your sin there with a nail driven through it, blood pouring down? Have you seen that sight? When Jesus says, come to me, or when the John the Baptist says in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the people would see Jesus, a man five foot seven. That's not what they're calling them to see. He's calling them to see with spiritual eyes. Christ crucified. My friends, Jesus is calling us with those three words to communion with God. And that communion is through the cross of Christ. Get a sight of it. Call out for it. It is the only safe ground. My Lord and my God, come thou almighty King, help us thy name to sing, help us to praise. Come and thy people bless and give thy words success, spirit of holiness, ancient of days. Lord God, I ask that your spirit would come down upon our congregation, that we would be a people who see the cross and live for Christ, that we would come to you. Lord, that we would hear you softly and tenderly. Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. Patiently, Jesus is watching and waiting, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home. You who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. Amen.